Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, we welcome Dr. Fred Provenza, Professor Emeritus of Behavioral Ecology in the Department of Wildland Resources at Utah State University. There, he directed an award-winning research group that pioneered an understanding of how learning influences foraging behavior and how behavior links soils, plants, herbivores, and humans. Today, he and Monty explore some of that research and the connections between animal and human nutrition. There's so much to cover, so let's just jump right in. Welcome to this episode of the Aggie Merge podcast. It's a real joy and pleasure to be joined by Dr. Fred Provenza today. Uh, welcome, Fred. I'm sure glad you could join us. Well, thank you, Monty. It's wonderful to be here with you. Well, we've had some fun uh, visiting just ahead of the episode here on some various things. We've gotten some laughs, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy today's uh, conversation that Fred and I have. Um, there's uh, In the show notes, you're going to learn a lot about Fred's research and pioneering efforts that he's done in animal and, and eventually bridging into human nutrition. But before we get down into all those uh, fun uh, details, i just like to take a moment and, Fred, share your story. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and Kind of uh, your why, what got you passionate and interested in what you're doing here today? Well, Monty, um, when I think back to, to when I was a, a youth, I was just fascinated by wild creatures, whether it was an insect, a bird, amphibian, mammal. I loved them. I was just, and who knows why you're that way, huh? It's just the way a person is. You got wired. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. I just absolutely loved wild creatures. And so um, for me growing up, there were really only three seasons, hunting, fishing, and skiing. And I survived the end of one season only because the next season was coming around. I grew up in central Colorado in a wonderful little town called Salida, which was uh, right in what they like to call the heart of the Rocky Mountains. So we, and in those days, we were allowed to roam. Uh, People didn't have a fear like maybe nowadays of what's going to happen to your little kids roaming around all in the mountains and and so we 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 were out all the time out all the time in the mountains in the rivers uh, so it's a wonderful way to to grow up for me and then you know that led to I never really planned anything I guess in life I'll have to be honest I just followed kind of followed my heart and when it came time to go to college, I thought, well, wildlife biology sounds good. I like wildlife. So there you go. so at school at Colorado State in wildlife biology. But I think the other thing that was hugely formative at that time, during my senior summer in high school, after I'd graduated, before I went to college, I had a friend who said, you want to earn some extra money? I'd worked at green at a greenhouse throughout my high school years. And he said, look, in the evenings and on the weekends, we can earn money hauling hay at Henry DeLuca's ranch. We'll get eight cents a bale, four cents a piece. 
And I said, well, what the heck? That sounds good. And I loved it. I loved being out there on the ranch. I loved Henry. And uh, so after that, then each summer I worked on the ranch each summer and, and time that I had off. And then when I, after I graduated from CSU, I knew, I don't know why, I just, I thought, well, I'm not gonna be a wildlife biologist. I really don't know what I'm gonna be. So Henry needs somebody to run the ranch. And I thought, I'll just go back there and see what, <laughs> see what happens, you know, see what, what happens. So I went back there and worked, managed the ranch for a couple of years. Sue and I were married. My wife and I were married back in 74, and uh, well, we were on the ranch. And I don't know why, I just was, got to thinking, you know, research could be interesting. And that's crazy, because I didn't know the least thing about, not, not a clue, you know, but I thought, well, that sounds, <laughs> and there was no future on the ranch. There, there just wasn't in terms of where the ranch was going once Henry and Rose died and stuff. And so, so I cast about trying to get into graduate school, found a place that finally would accept me and, uh, and then realized I absolutely loved research and 45 years later, 50 years later, that's where it all ended up. <laughs> so that's a little bit long-winded, Monty, but that's, you know, that's kind of what took me along the path. Well, following your heart, and I think not being afraid to ask a question of why, why are things the way they are? I think that's really foundational of, of, of what you've done when I think about your research. Uh, I, di I just think it's fascinating. You know, you discover one thing and you aren't afraid to ask five more things about it. And then it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, you only have probably another 150 years of research left to do to kind of get everything answered that you've asked, right? Well, that is how it went. And it, it was um, very much childlike, I think, in, the, in, that, in that sense. We have a couple of young, a young family that lives next to us they have two young children they're just they're they're beautiful it's and it takes you back to to how innocent and childlike children are young children and how they're just oh, so open huh and i think trying to keep for us as we get to be adults it's easy to uh, to not do that i guess to get more locked in set in our ways and i think trying to keep childlike is a uh, is really a good 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 virtue huh right and it's uh, also not being afraid to ask the question and uh because so, i think some some people are a little afraid to ask the question because they think oh i should know that or they just accept uh the given rules or, or paradigm they accept uh, what what is out there as as truth and don't even question it so i think when you just step back as um take a step back and look at it and say, well, wh why is that? that that's kind of curious. That curiosity, I think, is what's really driven what you've done. It's, it's amazing to see. Oh, it absolutely did. It uh, Just the, the curiosity. And I think being out in the field a lot and just watching, just watching. And I had good fortune. Um, again, who knows how any of this stuff takes place. The older I get, the more I just wonder about it in uh, amazement. But you know, when I went to, got into graduate school, my idea of a study would have been to study mountain goats in the high Rocky Mountains. That was my idea. And, and to go up there and roam around with them and watch what they ate. 
Well, I ended up with domestic goats in Southern Utah and a monoculture of a plant called blackbrush. And I thought, boy, what could be <laughs> That's the opposite. Be more boring than, than <laughs> this. And yet I learned so much watching those goats. And when I think back on it, if I'd have been up watching mountain goats eat 100, 150 different plant species, some of the things that, that perked my interest and that we, we went in on to, to study, it would never have, it wouldn't have been possible to see those, those things. And so, yeah, who knows how, how I'm getting more and more philosophical the older I get, but you just, it's kind of amazing to look back and just different things that happen and take you in different directions. And uh, yeah, it's all, it's all a wonderful thing. So let's talk about those goats eating those um, bushes and your observations were like, now, why are they eating it now, but they won't eat it at a different time? What in, you were trying to figure out this whole dynamic of how come this goat knew now is the time to eat this plant and versus not. And you want to, that's, that's kind of what got all of the curiosity started, correct? Well, yes, Monty. And what, what happened was <clears throat> my work was following up my, the research project that I was, was doing was following up on some work that a, a plant ecologist had done. And this ecologist was, had a real practical bent too. He, he worked a lot with livestock producers in Southern Utah. And this black brush occupies uh, transition zone between the cold and hot desert and ranchers wintered down on that, that country. And, uh, and a lot of wildlife species wintered on that country too. And he'd done some clipping studies where if you clip the shrub during the, uh, during the winter, during the dormant season, if, if got moisture during the spring, then that would stimulate a lot of new growth on the plant. And they'd done some chemical analyses and they'd shown that new growth is higher in energy and protein and minerals. And so the idea was, look, you know, years ago, there used to be goats in this country, and they used to browse this country, and that would have stimulated a lot of growth. Why don't we do that and look at it as a range improvement, using animals to improve landscapes? And that's really two things attracted me to go to Utah State University. One is that was the only place accepted me as a graduate student, <laughs> so that was, and the other one was that the program, um, was interested in how can we use domestic animals to improve habitat for wildlife species? And I thought, you know, that's, that's a wonderful thing. Rather than ranchers and wildlifers fighting one another, what if we work together and try to do that? So anyway, so the idea was let's use these goats to browse this plant and improve the habitat. And, uh, but what we found, and we found that certainly the, they browse during the, they browse the old growth twigs during the winter, and that would stimulate a lot of new growth. But the, here was the thing, the goats didn't want to eat the new growth. So Isn't it was like, well, what the heck's going on with that? <laughs> and uh, that, that, that opened up so much go, exploring that. The other thing too that happened was, um, we had six pastures. In fact, Sue and I went down there in July 4th of 1976, the anniversary, 200th anniversary of our country. And we drove down there to Southern Utah and we built fence. She built with me for, for until 
end of September, we built two miles of fence in 110 degree temperature. So I'm sounding like, you know, okay, we did a great, but it, <laughs> it was, uh, was something doing that. And uh, so we set up these six pastures and on one of the pastures, and this is the amazing thing. So then we've had goats on each of the six pastures, but on one of the pastures, the goats started to eat wood rat houses. And that was even more amazing. It's like black brush isn't great, but these wood rat houses look even worse. And so, you know, just rather than, well, when I went back to Utah State and I was telling, uh, I remember an, an old toxicologist about my observations, he, he said what most people believed in those days. He said, well, I guess that just goes to show that uh, domestic animals have lost nutritional wisdom, doesn't it? And I didn't know what to say, you know, because he's saying, well, they don't eat the twigs they should be eating. They're eating wood rat houses. How crazy is that? And I didn't know what to say. And I, I you know, young, young and uh, intimidated by, by the old professor. So I, I just kept quiet, but I didn't believe him. I thought there's more going on here than what we understand. They, those goats can't be crazy. And I, you know, I was no advocate of, of any of this, you know, that, but I just knew there had to be more to it that, than what we, than what we were seeing. And there was, you know, that we come to find out, we did a lot of work on this those new twigs are loaded with a condensed tannin. That's really, uh, can be harmful to the goats. So they, they knew more than we knew. And another interesting thing though that we saw in our trials was that's true for say 80 to 90% of the goats that we'd take down there. Another 10 to 20% never heard anything about that. They loved it. They loved the new twig. So it, that was revelatory to me too. Wow, there's a lot of variation among individuals in terms of their ability to utilize plants on landscapes and maybe we could even select for you know and if they had to live down there they would get selected in that way too for ones the ones that were able to do that would come to to dominate in the herd that's sort of a natural selection the wood rat houses what i came to appreciate that winter actually was when you looked at what they were doing, there's different rooms really in those houses. And uh, down there, the, so the house is covered in bark and you peel the bark away, which the goats had done and there are different rooms in there. And one of those is the bathroom basically. So you have this densely packed vegetation that makes up the inside of the house. And that vegetation was soaked in urine well as a non-protein source of nitrogen. And I was watching those goats when we'd weigh them and sure enough, they did better than the goats on the other five pastures that never learned to eat the wood rat houses. So there was another thing that was another light bulb going on thinking, wow, here it's not inevitable that these animals figure this out, but yet it would become a part of the culture of those animals, wouldn't it? Because they, you know, and I like to tease, maybe the Einstein of the goat world was in that group, but however they, they discovered that, they all learn. So every goat in that pasture, all 15 of them were eating wood rat houses like, uh, like mad, basically. There wasn't a wood rat house left in that pasture by the end of the, the end of the three month study that year. But um, yeah, so just, just watching animals, just watching what they were doing and, and uh, learning from them was so, 
so interesting to and and it really uh, just opened up all kinds of questions i remember talking with my major professor when i finished my phd and i said you know i'm really interested in learning i think it would be interesting to do a study and we were talking he said yeah you know you could do one study where you kind of separate the genetics from the learning and and that would be it. And I've often laughed about that because ended up doing jillions of studies over 40 years. It was, didn't end up to be just one study to kind of sort out, is it genetic or is it learned and, uh, and go down that path. It was, yeah, as you say, it was a lifetime of, of, of work. And, and you're teasing me about, you know, another lifetime of, of research could be done. And that's certainly the case. I, I am out of it now. I, I'd like to tease. I'm a cheerleader for, for young people. And I love to see, I just reviewed a thesis from New Zealand. And just to see how they're building, how people are building on some of that work. I have to tell you, it makes me feel good. And it's neat to see the young minds now go, you know, building on all that and and just adding to it in uh, in really neat ways it, it's yeah it's very nice to see that so let's catch our listeners up then on the goats as far as what you're observing is that there there's some in the group that are adventurous and, and they they eat it they have a good physiological response within their rumen they're getting some rumen signaling back to them and they realize oh that is good i will continue to eat that and, and then once they continue to eat that, maybe their um, immediate, you know, daughter or, or son or, or other within that social context will, will take that cue and, and then, uh, then the whole herd group will eventually uh, realize that source. Uh, so that, that's kind of the, the basis. There's, there's part uh, physiological response is that they have their own internal wisdom and then there's also a social wisdom within that group, correct? That's kind of the, the very nicely, drivers of it. Very nicely stated, Monty. That's absolutely that. So there's a physiological response for each animal that what we refer to as feedback. And we did so much studies of that feedback. And the idea is just as you said, you know, the animal eats something. So the flavor of that food and that food get associated then with the consequence. Is the consequence positive? If it is, increases the likelihood they'll eat it again. If it's negative, um, that decreases the likelihood. And so we are seeing both things happen within that group. And then you have, uh, over time, you would have that being transmitted from mother to offspring. Um, and we know now that that starts actually in the womb. The flavors of foods that mother eats get into the amniotic fluid. So young animals, even before they're born during that last trimester of gestation are starting to learn from their mother. After birth, flavors in mother's milk of foods that she's eating are cues to what's good to eat. And then the mother as a model of what and what not to eat and where and where not to go, habitat selection as well. We did a lot of studies of mother's role in influencing what drainage an animal goes in, what, what habitats they select. So yes, you stated that very well. I'm kind of restating now to what you said, but <laughs> well, no, it's just yeah. so fun to watch the animals because, you know, a cow calf, the calf is just right alongside mom and, and they're almost bite for bite, you know, when uh, this time of year they're, you know, that steer or, or uh, heifer is learning from mother. 
Uh, same thing on the, you know, Ram Lambs and uh, U Lambs. Uh, they're right next to, to the U and, and learning, and they're almost walking the calf's just a little bit behind up, you know, watching and eating the same. It's, it's fascinating. So there's that, that learning going on. So when I first met you it was at, uh, I believe at Grassfed Exchange or Grassworks, one, one of those two, um, you were a keynote at both of them. And it just fascinating to learn about the research you'd done, but you showed the video of the U's and straw and they, <laughs> it, it just blew my mind. You had one was flavored, I believe with maple syrup and one was flavored with uh, was it coconut or what was? We the... used all kinds of flavors: maple, apple, coconut. Yeah, we used okay. a lot of different so, flavors. That's so cute, right? Lay, lay it out a little bit for us. You had one group that was, um, if they ate the straw with the coconut flavor, you gave them a mineral package so that they made satiety, and they then associated the coconut flavored straw with what I need to eat. But with the maple flavored straw, you didn't give them that. Then you had another group where you reversed it, right? You had the, the, the maple flavored and they were given the mineral package. They felt met satiety and the coconut they didn't. And, and you trained them for a period of time and then you introduced them. And the one group was eating the coconut and going to town and the maple people were thinking they were nuts and, and the maple people, you know, vice versa. It's just this fascinating dynamic of the, the social interaction of couldn't believe the one group was eating the maple flavored straw and the other one couldn't believe they're eating the coconut flavored straw. Uh, talk talk about this. How did you come up with this idea? How did you and execute it? And you know, w what was your kind of your aha moment in in developing it that way? And then the the all the learnings that you've gotten out of that from the social and the satiety um, um, uh, effects of it. You know, <clears throat> I mentioned that I had talked to this to. Uh, toxicologist when I was observing what the goats were doing and he was saying well I guess that just goes to show that animals domestic animals have lost nutritional wisdom Whoops. and as I say I didn't believe him but it really got me thinking well how would you demonstrate to to an old and I really like this I appreciated him very much so this is not nothing negative here but how would you demonstrate to old Joe Street uh, who's long dead now, how would you demonstrate to Joe in a way that would convince him that animals actually have nutritional wisdom? And some graduate students and I who were interested in this and, and some old professors who were too and who, who are gone now too, but we'd sit around and brainstorm about that. Well, how would you do it? Because, you know, flavor in a way, the flavor of food, how do you know it's not just that everybody thought animals eat things because they taste good, they avoid them because they taste bad, and that's about it, that it's the hedonics that drives it. And so how would you show that that hedonics is somehow hooked to um, nutritional wisdom? And so we, we, we wrestled with that a long time. And the best way we came up with was you described it nicely, you know, is that we would... <clears throat> We would offer animals in different groups flavored straw. So the idea was here's a food that's not very nutritious at all in terms of what, what we were doing. And we'll give uh, apple and maple flavored straw or coconut or whatever. We'll put a flavor on it. And then let's just take one group. You described it really well. I'm impressed, Monty, that you remember after so long. You're a great you know? teacher. Yeah, I don't know. You're a great student, I'm thinking. But 
you know, so imagine you've got one group of goats or, or one group of sheep, and on even days, they get maple flavored straw for a, for a meal, just a meal first thing in the morning, half an hour or so. And then immediately after that meal, what we would do is take a stomach tube and pour uh, uh, quart of water right into their rumen. We'd, now that only makes sense in terms of what we did on even days. Now we'd switch the flavor. So if they got maple the first day, now they get apple flavored straw. But now we drench them with a nutrient that they're lacking. So we've made them very mildly deficient. You mentioned minerals. Um, we did it with minerals. We started out actually with energy because we thought if you can't show it with energy, you're probably not going to show it with anything. Then we went to protein. And then we started working with protein to energy ratios because we know they matter from a nutritional standpoint, right? That those, when you're growing, you have greater needs for protein. Um, if you have a parasite infection, if, uh, if, if the animal's pregnant. And so we were looking at all these different states and then looking at protein to energy ratios. Then we went on to minerals like calcium and phosphorus and sulfur and uh, sodium. And then some of our friends in Australia went on to the vitamins like vitamin E and just showed over and over again, if animals are mildly deficient in any of these, they'll form a very strong preference for the flavor of a food like straw that really won't rectify that deficit when they've been had that nutrient put directly into the gut. Does that make sense? Am I explaining that? Absolutely. You're, you're helping them associate straw, which is fairly nutrient devoid with uh, the nutrient that they need to meet their individual satiety. And, and so you looked at multiple nutrients, you looked at multiple growth stages and probably within the same age group, even within the same parentage and the same, um, you know, sex and, and pregnancy, what, whatever. I mean, you probably saw individual animal differences, I would imagine, even, even all other conditions being the same. So we did, Monty. And to the extent that, you know, in the last many years, I don't remember, decade or so, that we would publish papers, we would always make a point of talking about variation among individuals. Um, you know, in experiments, you have a treatment and a control group, and you want to show that they're, you know, you're trying to see, are they different relative to your treatment? And so that's what we focus on. The, the, the average for this group was different from the average for the, that group. But what we made a point of was to say within those groups, there's, you know, we were showing differences, statistically significant differences. But I think sometimes people push back on us a little bit, reviewers, because, well, it's beside the point. But we would say, no, that's always the point, is that no two individuals are alike. And uh, we know for, for we humans, we're each so different that a bloodhound can track us by our odors. We can be identified by our fingerprints. And if we look inside of us, we're so different in terms of our organs, how the, the, their form and their function. And so, you know, so it makes us unique then. And so we shouldn't be expected to, to all like the same things either, right? And you know, um, you know that that's the case, even with, even with your children, they're gonna be, uh, they're not gonna be exactly like, like, like you are. 
it'd be really boring if everybody was the same, right? Honest to goodness, <laughs> I, I think it would be incredibly, incredibly boring if if we, there was. It's making me think of a movie I watched years ago. I don't think it ever was a big, big success, but it was titled Pleasantville, and that was the. <laughs> starts out everything's in black and white and everything is absolutely predictable everything <laughs> hi honey i'm home he'd say what he'd walk in the doors to have the same and the movie is about them starting to wake up to their individuality and creativity and as it goes it goes from black and white into color but it's making that point of how boring <laughs> yeah it's absolutely predictable it's absolutely boring we're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. So as we're, we're coming along in the timeline here, we've learned that, you know, different animals need different nutrients, but generally as a group, they, they, they self-teach te- self as, as a group and they share that uh, teachings across the generations of what's, what's good and healthy to eat and what isn't. So now we, we're going to, we'll take the leap into the two-legged um, animals and realize that there's these, uh, yeah, certain certain two-legged individuals running around the planet Earth that have uh, exploded in population, like we were talking earlier. And uh, we realize that they don't have, uh, they have more than just learning from their, their parents and grandparents what to eat. Um, they're learning from you know, friends and media, advertising, marketing, and those kind of things of, of that social context has been interrupted. Plus, um, the complexity of flavors and the, and the variety of choice and uh, some of these um, manufactured ingredients and such are really changing our, you know, gut biome brain connection to know what foods are good for us. So, Let's, uh, is it too soon to take a jump from, from uh, goats and sheep to humans? Uh, can, can we do that whiplash here now, uh, Fred? And, and yes, uh, yeah, talk about absolutely. Different things we deal with as humans at the marketing side and with the uh, being able to identify and rely on our nutritional wisdom, as you say. Yeah, oh no, it's not too soon. And you did a great job of segueing us into that. And, uh, you know, so, mu- so much is, uh, it's just almost overwhelming the amount that's that has been written, that's being written, the the amount of conflicting kind of voices that are out there in terms of what you should and should should not be eating. I uh, uh, Sue and I, my wife Sue and I, think of that all the time uh, in our interactions with different folks that we know and. Uh, Diet, in a sense, becomes religion to, to folks, too. Uh, I mean, you really, and some of some of the ideas that were uh, mainstream years ago are, uh, are not mainstream nowadays, but a lot of folks haven't kept up on any of that. And so 
it can be really challenging to uh, we we aren't um, we don't wear it on our sleeve any of this stuff that we so we don't you know it can be boring to try to talk about some of this stuff to, to folks maybe and and also it can be quite challenging so we we don't we don't make too much of a point of any of this but but it's clear when you listen to people talk and and you see what what they think about the foods that they should and should not be eating and often think boy that was sure certainly true many many years ago and maybe it's still true amongst some in the medical profession for instance but nowadays there's uh, a lot of evidence that that uh some of the things we, we thought years ago aren't aren't necessarily the case, and so on. I know I'm being kind of vague, you well, know, not and, getting into specifics, but but I boy, there's a lot that's changed in terms of our views of all this. A great example, Fred, is egg. Okay, you know, it's almost you can on monthly like clockwork. You can read an article about how great eggs are for you, and then next month, oh, they're terrible for you, and then great and terrible, great and terrible, and it seems like today. Um, marketing, and I think uh, my experience, the Almond Board of California has done an excellent job of very specific research in order to drive their marketing efforts. Now, almonds, they've, they've done all this background research to create a great case for how healthy almonds are for you. And then from there, they take that and, and market it. And that Almond Board of California is not unique in this. You know, pork, the other white meat, they try to emphasize, and they've moved the whole pork industry away from fat hogs to lean hogs you know, in order to meet a low fat diet market, which is the on trend at one time. So, I mean, you know, whole industries have been changed by people's opinion of, of food. You know, we've, we've lost the ability to, uh, we've really lost a lot of fat hog genetics, if you will. You know, it, it's, it's hard to find heritage breeds. So there, there's definitely these, these trends out there that, that drive our entire food supply. But I want to, I want to back up just a second, and for those out there, um, without having to get the uh, uh, tube and the mineral packet down our, our throat to learn to eat straw as a person, uh, how, do we, how do we listen to ourselves? How do you turn out all the noise, and how do you listen to, uh, you think, uh, how do you listen to what your body is telling you it needs, because everybody is unique, and that was a point that you made earlier. Um, how, how do you listen to your own individual nutritional uniqueness? You know, that's, that's the $24,000 question. A absolutely, Monty. That, that's hitting the nail on the head. And I think um, the challenge I see is um, these dietary habits, as we said, begin in utero and early in life. And so imagine... Let, let's take one subset of, of the foods that I think, uh, you know, two things have happened that I think have really set us up to, for the food system to be hijacked. One is the flavors of wholesome foods, let's say fruits, vegetables, meats, that meats that would historically have been raised on pasture uh, prior to World War II. And so there's this whole, um, a whole kind of phytochemical, we, we could say, uh, there's a whole richness there, uh, uh, to that meat that, that maybe we've lost in going to feedlots. And then in the fruits and vegetables as well, we've, we've selected against it. So I'll use this term again, phytochemical richness. 
What that means is simply that we know that there are energy, protein, minerals, and so forth in fruits and vegetables and meats. But there are also plants produce this huge array of other kinds of compounds. They come under broad headings like terpenes, phenolics, alkaloids. And these, these get into, they're an integral part of plants. They're an integral part of when animals are foraging on pasture, they become a part of the, the meat and fat. And they give a, a unique flavor, but also they add huge health benefits to those foods. And what we've done then is to select against those. We selected for quantity as opposed to nutritional density and nutrient density being not only energy, protein, minerals, and vitamins and so forth, but these rich array of, of other kinds of compounds. Uh, and we've done that with fruits, vegetables, and meat. So that's one thing that's happened. But at the same time, ultra-processed foods have become absolutely uh, irresistible. The food industry has figured out how, how to create these, these ultra-processed foods that are so common nowadays and to flavor them in ways that, uh, you know, fantastic flavors that are followed by feedback that we were talking about from energy uh, especially. And so we've really, really hijacked the system. So if you start out early in life and your mother say is eating those kinds of foods. And then as a young child, you're eating those kinds of foods, boy, it's not a, it's, it's a huge challenge of how do you then make a move back toward wholesome fruits, vegetables, meats, those kind of things. How do you how do you transform yourself in that direction? And, uh, you know, I deal, I visit with, with medical doctors and clinical nutritionists who, who that's what they do in, the, in their work. And it's, uh, thank goodness for them and the work that they do. And it's a real challenge for them, you know, to, to get people back to, to get them on wholesome foods and let that wisdom of the, the body start to, to, to become a part of, of what the person does um, and of the foods that, they, that the person selects. It's, you, you've raised such, a, such an, enormous, an enormous question in what you do. My wife Sue and I, um, fortunately, we were raised at a time when, when um, the ultra-processed foods and, and all of the marketing of that, fast food joints weren't even, they came into being during our life. So we, we were lucky early in our lives not to, not to, to, to have been, uh, had that as a part of our, of our upbringing. And uh, so we, we were on, um, my mother cooked meals and, and was raised on that. So I didn't have that to overcome. But even at that, that some of those ultra-processed things started to creep into our diet over time. And when we started to realize the downside of, of all those foods and fruit drinks, and, you know, they're basically sugar laden and, you know, high fructose corn syrup and on and on and on. 
we made a decision that we just won't bring any of that home because we realized we couldn't resist it actually if it was there in the cupboard we were going to eat it so we said okay it starts at the grocery store we simply do not bring this home we try to figure out uh, we try to grow as much of the food as we can ourselves, but what we can't, we buy at the supermarket. We really uh, moved strongly toward organic to get away from pesticides. And, uh, and uh, so that was a decision that we made. We, we, we bring home wholesome foods. At the holidays, it's a challenge because you have your friends and neighbors bringing a lot of ultra-processed foods over, and uh, I shouldn't say this, but a lot of times, as soon as they leave, soup throws it in the trash can. Well, you can compost it and feel better. Yeah, compost. <laughs> anyway, it, it's a huge, it's a huge deal, but no. to say a positive about all that, I, I see these folks that I, that I know work with people in this capacity have success. They have success with, with folks of getting them off of, off of the junk food diets, onto wholesome diets and really improving, improving their health. So, so it definitely can be done. I think the phytochemical richness aspect um, is, is excellent. And now being able to identify foods that are, are phytochemically rich in the um, let's say in the fruits and, and nuts arena, when you choose whole foods that are or, organic grown to avoid uh, synthetic pesticides, uh, there's still natural pesticides that are used, and, and it, but it still doesn't, and a lot of times there's some nutritional imbalances because we're you know, using so much manure to grow those crops for the USDA label that oftentimes we'll, we'll over phosphorus in order to get the nitrogen we need and we produce some micronutrient you know, issues in the final food product. It's so tough to know what is phytochemically rich. It, it, it's because we're, we're still paid on pounds as a farmer, right? They want pounds and tons and bushels and, and it's a weight measurement essentially. So finding that phytochemical richness, I think is difficult within uh, the fruits, nuts, produce type products. Now, I think there is some hope though in the meat and uh, poultry and protein products, animal proteins, because you know a lot of your research has shown that you know uh, there is a significant difference in phytochemical richness between pasture-based meats or you know grass-finished-based meats compared to to feedlot. So I think you know for a person that's looking to purchase out there, when you say you know, to, to know that you're getting phytochemical richness within meats is probably easier to know than, than in the, than fruits and etch, uh, produce, or am I really oversimplifying things here, Fred? No, I think you're, uh, in terms of what I understand about it all, Monty, I think you're, you're exactly right. Um, you know, and there is this movement toward finishing animals on pastures. And I think a growing appreciation that when animals have access to a diverse array of different plant species, that improves their health. Mm -hmm. uh, and it gets you out of needing to, to medicate animals, actually, because the plants are providing the medicine, right? They, uh, and, so, and then to realize that those compounds are getting into the meat and fat. And uh, you know, I'm working with two, two people. I'm a cheerleader, like I say, helping to write grants and papers, but we've done review papers that are, are making the points that we're making and then very active research program going now 
Stefan Van Vliet at Duke is leading that up. Scott Kronberg is also uh, participating and Stefan's linking with many, many folks. But, you know, looking at livestock, cattle, sheep, goats, um, looking at chickens, looking at wildlife species, he's got really a, an incredibly active program <clears throat> comparing <clears throat> meat from feedlots, meat from monocultures, meat from animals that are eating really diverse diets on pastures. And uh, that's, it's gonna be uh, very interesting to see over the next decade or so, all that comes out of that work. And there's different levels to it. One, one is simply doing what's referred to as metabolomics analyses, which is a way, it's a big word, metabolites, looking at, at metabolites. And it's a way to, to really get a handle, not only on primary nutrients, but all these, this phytochemical richness. So Stefan's doing a lot of work like that. Beyond that, though, where we want to go is to, to trials, to clinical trials, where people are fed meat that's coming from different sources. And there just hasn't been much work done on that. But the study that caught my attention was done in Australia, probably over a decade ago now, and they were comparing kangaroos that were foraging out on diverse landscapes with cattle that had come through a feedlot. And what they were looking at was inflammatory markers. And uh, people may, may not realize this, but anytime we eat a meal, there's an inflammatory response in our body. And the degree to which that occurs depends upon the foods that, that we're eating. Now, in this case with the cattle, what they found that was just remarkable was that uh, when people ate meat from the cattle, the inflammatory markers went right up and they stayed high for, for several hours after the meal. When they ate the kangaroo, there was hardly any rise in inflammatory markers. And so it's the, the idea is that this low-grade systemic inflammation is what's leading to so many of the diseases that we have nowadays. And so if you can eat foods that, that uh, are anti-inflammatory as opposed to pro-inflammatory, you're better off. And that's the links then back to, you know, <clears throat> if you're buying meat that's grass-fed and it's coming from animals that are eating a diverse array of plants, that's probably going to benefit you in that sense. And that's, that's a big area of... Uh, research that, that Stefan is going to be getting into as, as his project goes, goes along. And we, we've had the pleasure of talking to Stefan on the, on the podcast, and I encourage our listeners to, to go back a few and, and listen to that. Um, what I wanted to, a little more what I wanted to dive into there, Fred, on the phytochemical richness is we kind of know by the production practices on the animals what we could likely expect if they have a high diversity grass finished diet likely going to be better how can people know on the plant-based foods what is things or, or when do we get the technology to where a farmer is paid for phytochemical richness or what is that uh, versus just for the pounds um, and, and how how does this how do you envision this um, changing uh, back to what's what's best for us. You yeah, good question. Good question. You know, there's <clears throat> some efforts that are are underway. Dan Kittridge, I think of, and and the group um, 
that that he leads up are sure surely interested in this idea of, of nutrient density of, of fruits and vegetables and uh, ways that you can quickly measure that they're developing some instrumentation that a consumer could could take and and assess that in the store. And I think Dan has an appreciation for this broader phytochemical richness that we're talking about. And, you know, there, there um, people like Joe Robinson have written books about, um, you know, what to look for, color, color in, color in vegetables and color in fruits can, can be indicative of phytochemical richness. Those colors come from these phytochemicals. And so, you know, if a person gets into, into um, appreciating that and then thinking about, well, how does that phytochemical richness come and what are some cues that we can use? I think that the best cue of all is just the flavor of the flavor itself. When, when you pick up a fruit in the grocery store, if it has no flavor whatsoever to you, that's your body telling you there's not much going on here. If it has a really a richness of flavor, then you can start to, to intuit that, that this is probably um, pretty good in terms of its, of its overall richness. It's true though, what we're saying that we have selected in the, in the varieties we selected for and the farming practices that we've developed, we've really selected for growth as opposed to phytochemical richness. And, uh, you know, the, there aren't a lot of programs that I know of in the U.S. that are thinking about phytochemical richness. Uh, there's one in, in Florida, Harry Cleese was working with tomatoes and with uh, strawberries. And he was really, he and his colleagues were really thinking about phytochemical richness and how do we get a balance between production, which is important, but phytochemical richness as well, which, which leads to health, right? It's why we, it's why we eat is to, to have the benefits of, of all this, uh, the, the rich array of compounds that plants produce. If you wanna get a, an indication of how much that's changed too, uh, in the fall of the year here in Montana, um, when we go for hikes, we can pick probably berries from probably 12 different plant species. And they're not just sweet. They are sweet, but they've got some punch to them. They've got some, they've got some really richness of flavor. And that's the, that's that richness that we've selected against in terms of going for, for growth at the expense of richness. But, um, I think of that all the time of the berries that, and we've been up Get, getting choke cherries. This was a great choke cherry year around here. And the, the berries are just fabulous when you pick a handful of those and, and uh, put them in your mouth, you understand what about phytochemical richness at that point. So it's been quite a, a journey of discovery that, that you've been on um, from just taking a look at, at why things are happening, asking those questions and, and bringing it all around to, uh, to human nutrition. And I think, you know, it's knowing, knowing what you know today, where, where would you like to see this work continue to? 
as you're cheering on and, and coaching others, where, where do you want to see this um, knowledge base, if you will, continue to grow and expand and, and um, grow into in the future? I think just what you were asking about, uh, Monty, I think understanding that uh, what it means to, to eat wholesome foods again and uh, having that get back to the general public um, to move away from, from the ultra-processed kinds of foods that, that we've come to be such a part of the diets to move back toward an appreciation for where is food coming from? How do we grow that food? And why does, you know, what, what are the costs for diet related diseases nowadays? I think I was looking at a figure two, two trillion annually or something. I mean, those are all costs that we pay. And if we realize that, uh, Food is medicine. Food is medicine for, for the animals that, uh, that we grow. It's medicine for us. There's no kidding about that. Diverse arrays of wholesome foods uh, generate health. And that health, I often like to say, think about that plants turn dirt into soil and diverse mixtures of plants turn soil into homes grocery stores and pharmacies for animals below ground and above ground. And to think about that diversity and what that diversity means for the health of ecological systems and then for our health as well, I think is, is really important. And uh, you know, if each of us would start to grow our own go back to like the old people did when I was a kid where, you know, it, it was uh, people took pride and understood those heritage breeds and varieties and that they knew the value. They appreciated the value. They weren't stuck on nutrients. Nowadays, we're so stuck on, you know, does it, do you have enough of this nutrient or that nutrient? Or, they knew it's the richness of flavors of these plants that we're growing ourselves. They're not caught up on, on all the different you should be having this nutrient. You shouldn't be having that nutrient. It was just growing wholesome foods and enjoying those foods. Um, I think that would, would really be a benefit and, and may come to be a necessity in society as things, things move along, along here. So the nutritional wisdom is look for food that just tastes great and is satisfying and is as close to nature as possible. Uh, absolutely. And, and, as we're saying, making sure that that's fruits, vegetables, nuts, wholesome foods are not, because there's no question the, the, the food industry has made ultra processed foods ultra desirable uh, off the charts. So it's gotta be these wholesome foods. And then as you were, were saying and uh, your questions, you know, trying to, to learn about, well, which, which, which one's in the grocery store? You've got a bunch of choices, which one's are likely to be the most more phytochemically rich than other ones and so forth. Reading books like Joe Robinson writes. So speaking of books, I know somebody who wrote a great book uh, called Nourishment. And uh, I think everyone should grab a copy of it and read it and understanding nutritional wisdom. Uh, tell us a little bit about it and, uh, and why, why folks should take a, take a read of that. Well, I, I, 
I'm not going to be self-promoting here. I don't know. <laughs> I'm asking you to be self-promoting. I think everybody needs to read this book. Yeah. But I'll tell you how the book came about. I uh, I never intended, to, going back to our earlier conversation of following the heart, never intended to write a book. But when I retired 12 years ago and soon I moved to the backwoods of Colorado, that was kind of, that was traumatic on me, actually. You're used to being so active and in the middle of everything. And now you're out there. 12 miles in on graveled road, nobody knows who you are, couldn't care less who you are. And that was good, good, actually, really good. You know, it gets you out of the ego stuff and just realizing, but, but it was traumatic. And uh, I wrote the book as a way to try to, to ease the trauma, I guess, in a way. It was a great time to become a child again. We were back there surrounded by the beauty of, of nature during the day. We we're living at uh, 9,500 feet elevation, the transition between the con conifer and aspen and these parklands, beautiful 14,000 foot peaks surrounding us. And at night, the stars just no, no light pollution. It was a beautiful place. And it was a time to, to let go of the life that I'd been living, the research and all that. And become a child again, just watch, just watch all the, all the animals that were around us and the plants and, uh, and then a time to, to reflect and writing nourishment was a, a way to reflect back over, over the years and, and uh, you know, what, what, what had happened on the, the, you know, this brief moment that we're here on the planet, it was a chance just to reflect on that for, for me. And so it really, uh, Helped, helped with that transition. Took 10 years to write the book, actually. I never thought it would, would take so long. And, uh, you know, in science, we're trained to write in very boring ways. You know that from reading science papers. Oh, they're not interesting at all. So it was a challenge to try to think about, can I make this maybe halfway interesting for, for, for a more general audience? And, I don't know if I accomplished that or not, but I was at least trying not to be totally boring in the way I wrote it. Well, I certainly find it interesting, and I hope others listening will, will go out and, and uh, pick it up and, and take a read. So anything else you'd like to add while we are got our time here together today, Fred? Oh, Monty, I'd just like to say it's wonderful to visit with you again. Uh, that's what I would add is just a wonderful opportunity to spend time, time with you having this conversation. Thank you for that. Well, I would enjoy having another cup of coffee again with you when I'm up in Ennis or, or wherever our paths happen to, to cross again. I look forward to, to seeing you in person again. So thank you. Thank you for your time today. And I really appreciate the the topics that you brought up and your story that you've shared and help farmers to think and think differently, that it isn't all about yield. It's, it starts with the soil, like you said, and, and creating that diverse um, plant community that is our grocery store, that is our um, pharmacy, and allow the soil and plants, animals, all to work together to, to be what we need, be our medicine and, and be our sustenance. And uh, I thank you for your really groundbreaking uh, research and observations that uh, help us to understand that a little bit better. Wonderful, Monty. Look forward to seeing you again, too, having another cup of coffee. Very good. Thank you, Fred. You have a wonderful, wonderful day. Okay, you too, Monty. Take care. 
What a great conversation with Dr. Provenza. I really appreciate his passion, curiosity, and how he illustrates for us a willingness to learn from what we thought we knew so we can go on to learn something even better. And speaking of learning, if you'd like to find out more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. There's lots of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.